Hello and welcome to the Wild Hearts Business for Good podcast. My guest today is Adair Fox Martin, a member of the executive board of SAP. Adair leads customer success and is responsible for SAP's business globally and the success of over 440,000 customers and nearly 40,000 employees. In 2020, Adair was named in Fortune magazine's top 50 most powerful women international list for the fourth time running. She's also an ambassador for Social Enterprise UK's Buy Social Corporate Challenge. Adair, we always like to start by giving our listeners a chance to get to know you better. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? What path did you take to get where you are today? All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me, Mick. I'm delighted to be with you and the team. Uh, yeah, I guess the path that I took is probably one that's a little bit unusual. I um, grew up in Dublin uh, and I was very fortunate to be part of a, a family of very strong women, uh, starting with my mum and um, my two younger sisters. And, uh, you know, in a very ordinary working class background, my, my dad drove a truck for a living and my mum was a stay at home mum. Um, and when we needed some extras, sometimes she went and, and had, you know, worked part time. Our family was hugely supportive, incredibly loving, and I wouldn't swap anything about, you know, the joys of, of growing up in that kind of context. I, you know, I went to the same school that my mum went to. I believe that I was, you know, first in the school to, to make it to university, and I was definitely first in family to head to university. And... I guess from there it was, you know, always going to be a, a, a little bit of a, a interesting journey because I actually was convinced from the time that I was four years old and and first met this teacher called Miss Pierce um, that I was going to be a teacher like Miss Pierce and uh, and that's where I headed. I I left, I graduated from from uni from Trinity College in Dublin and I became a school teacher and I remember at the time of graduating it was uh, a time of very difficult economic conditions in Ireland and not a, not dissimilar to the kind of conditions that we saw with the global financial crisis but very you know uniquely contained to Ireland and um, there were no jobs uh, so I moved to the UK in order to um, in order to begin to work as a teacher um, and it was it was such an eye-opening experience for me because it was the first time that I lived away from home and although the two countries are geographically and politically in so many ways so close there were so many differences that um, I had to learn to navigate and navigate in that classroom and you know when, when you think about the job of a school teacher I think it's the only job where on your first day you're CEO of 32 plus people and uh, you need to find a way to engage them and, and maintain that level of engagement, you know, for the duration of the lesson and sometimes even beyond. So it was an incredible experience and um, one that taught me a lot of lessons, many of which I've been able to apply years later, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and I made my way from teaching actually into the IT industry in the first step as a as a training consultant. 
And, um, you know, that was a real great opportunity because you were able to take some skills that you developed in a completely different sector and bring those skills into a new sector. Um, and it was interesting to me that even though you were in a professional training environment and even though, you know, the delegates sitting in front of you were paying for the privilege to have this training and everybody sitting in front of you as a graduate and a professional, you know, the dynamics of the classroom was still very similar. They were, you know, brought you almost back to that first day of, of teaching in high school. And really from there, I had the opportunity to work across all of the lines of business in a software company, which really kind of gave me a, a great understanding of how the sum of the parts make up the whole um, and the role that everybody plays in doing that. And I had the opportunity to work in the UK, to work in Europe, to work in Australia, um, to work in Asia, and now back in Europe again. So, you know, really an incredible story, you know, from the classroom, I guess, into, into an executive office, but taking many of the lessons of the classroom with me. I have a, an uncle who was a, a director of a, a company globally, and when he retired, he became a chemistry teacher, and he said it was the hardest thing he'd ever done. <laughs> I think, you know, like, <laughs> you know like dealing with a classroom of kids is probably, um, you know, as you say, it was a trial by fire, because as I understand it, that school in England was in quite a deprived area. Is that not the case? It w Well, you know, it was the time when um, schools were being managed by parental committees, and our catchment area had a number of council estates, um, high-rise type council estates around us. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, so there were a, a lot of incredible kids in that school who probably at the age of 13 and 14 had experienced a whole set of challenges that I couldn't even imagine and were just not in my realm of experience. And, um, you know, that was the reality of, of that world. You know, I, I remember, you know... Um, some kids who regularly truanted, right? And, you know, the system failed them in, in so many ways. And I remember, you know, just even thinking about how, how the aesthetics of your classroom, uh, you know, the, the room itself could actually create a different set of experiences and a, a different set of understanding. I, I rearranged my classroom so that it was an L shape, basically so I could see everybody's hands under the desk if I'm being really truthful. Um, and, you know, and, and partly I, I didn't look old enough. I mean, there, there were definitely girls in, in some of the classes that I was teaching that I would have led into a nightclub before I let me into a nightclub. But, you know, especially for the senior groups, it was about being respectful for each other and of each other. And so I bought a kettle. I brought in uh, some cups and, and stuff from home. Um, and the lessons were an hour and a half long, and that's quite a long time. Uh, so we would work consistently for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And then we had a tea break, a coffee break. And one of them was responsible for bringing in the milk and the biscuits when it was their turn. We had a rota. Um, I never asked where they came from. <laughs> I always assumed that they were legitimately procured. And, and, and we had a tea break and then we settled down to work again. And 
you know, I got to know a lot about those kids in, in that kind of environment. And it was interesting. I never locked my classroom door. I always took time to make sure that my room looked good and my room was never touched. And, you know, one of the, one of the, the most uh, humbling gifts I have, and I still have it today, I'm 30 plus years married now, but that class, that, you know, a GCSE exam class, they bought me a clock when I was getting married. I was getting married at the time that I was teaching. And I remember they gave me the clock. And the sad thing is they gave me with that clock an envelope. Um, and the envelope was the receipt because they wanted me to know that they bought the clock and that despite what anybody else said, they actually bought the clock. Um, and I still have that clock today. It doesn't work, but I still have it. And it's in a pride of place in my living room. Isn't it incredible the influence that a passionate and committed teacher can have on a kid's life, regardless of their background? You know, the power that teachers have to influence yeah. kids, the destiny is remarkable. And uh, it just shows that you were communicating them in a different way, which I think leads me to the next point. In what way is your your upbringing and your personal values influence? I'm really looking forward to coming on to your, the work with Social Enterprise UK mm -hmm. and um, what you're doing in procurement, because I think obviously there's an, a, a chain of, of influence there from the way you were brought up. But maybe as you were going into your career that your own upbringing in Dublin, how you could relate to these kids and then how you've gone on to do your job today. How, how much do you think your upbringing influenced that? Um, well, look, I mean, I think in a huge way. I mean, I remember there there was this one teacher in in um, in our school, uh, Mr. Malali. I I think he's passed since passed away, but um, he was an incredible, incredible educator. And when I think back to, you know, one or two or three of the things that made the difference for me, he was one of them. We didn't have a lot of books. We didn't we didn't have a lot of things that we were surrounded by that kind of helped you to be successful. And at the time, he lived in a county that was two counties away from where our school was in Dublin. And this is, you know, the time before motorways in Ireland when, you know, those journeys took time because you were coming in little country roads. And he literally drove up to my house every second Saturday. And he brought me out to the library of one of the universities in Dublin um, so that I could, you know, I guess, just get the sense of the place, maybe even begin to feel that I could potentially belong somewhere like this. And I guess to inspire me to, to do my best and he he was just an incredible an incredible force in my life and i guess i understood maybe at that point maybe not in a way that i could articulate but i guess i understood the power of education and the role that being educated can have in helping to define your future um, and whilst i probably couldn't articulate it back then I maybe implicitly understood it because of the difference that that incredible man made in my life. That's incredible. I mean, I have a, a house in Donegal, which was left to me by my, you know, it's been in the family for hundreds of years. And I know what you mean about the little country roads. Yes, you, don't get anywhere, yes. you don't get anywhere fast. No, <laughs> no, regardless of the car and regardless of the volume of traffic, <laughs> you're not getting anywhere quickly. And, you know, now when I sit back and I think about the fact that he did that and he had a young family of his own. Um, I mean, he obviously 
saw something in me that warranted that investment and I was very privileged to receive it. But think about it, Adair. You were the first person in your family to go to university as my older sister. You know, I, I grew up with a very strong mother and two older sisters. I've got no brothers. Um, and my older sister was my role model. She was the first person to go to university. But for you to be potentially the first person in your whole school, he obviously saw something in you. And you went, went on to become a role model for other girls and boys to follow in your footsteps. So he, he, he probably knew he was backing a winner, don't you think? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I actually, you know, in Ireland at the time, they it's still called the same exam leaving certificate. And um, the... I didn't have a second language, right? I, um, I, I, you know, we did the core subjects, Irish, English, math. Everybody had to do that. And then you chose four other subjects or three other subjects for your leaving certificate. And, um, you know, there was a limited language stream offer, offered in our school. And so I didn't choose it, uh, which meant that the only language that I had was Irish and that meant that I was super limited for the universities that I could go to. Mm-hmm. Basically one, Trinity, because for every other languages, every other university, you had to have two. Um, and so I did my leaving cert and I, I did exceptionally well, except in Irish. Um, and I didn't get enough to go to uni for just on the Irish score, not based on everything else where, you know, I had done really really well so I had to decide what I was going to do and I decided that I was going to swallow my pride and go back to school and do my leaving cert again um, and you know the school the teachers the, the it was a convent school as most schools were in Ireland then convent for the girls you know the brothers for the boys you know I went back to the head nun and I asked her could I come back to school and um, I had to go buy my uniform again it was a bit you know, don't think to put a uniform on when you're 17, 18, when you think you're done with that. Mm-hmm. I put my uniform back on and um, and retook my leaving cert again. And, you know, they were wonderful. They gave me the keys to, to the school so I could come and go. They, I didn't have to go to every single class where the syllabus was exactly the same. But in some in some courses, the syllabus changed year from year. And so I did it again. And it was a uh, second time lucky. And maybe, you know, he saw that I, I guess, had the guts to go back and, um, and try again. And, um, and he helped me in an incredible way. Talent's one thing, but it's guts and grit to, to persist when things don't go your way, isn't it? I think so. I think you have to always look at decisions from the context of, you know, recognizing that, you know, not everything is going to be smooth sailing and the most defining moments, I think, for individuals are the moments when things don't go to plan uh, and when you have to rethink what you are going to do and define your next steps. And it's great now, I think, you know, when you look at the, you know, the senior school system now that there are a lot of different alternative ways to university, you know, f- for kids today. It wasn't the same then. Um but, yep, I really believe that in moments of adversity, that's where you find the strength, you know, to make decisions that otherwise you might not be faced with. Your comments on education are very well made. I am, um, you know, Wild Hearts. Yes. 
has the reusable sanitary pad project for girls in Africa and starting in South Africa. The insights we were given um, into the implications for not only the girl's life, but the whole world effectively, if a girl is not educated, that when we think of the ambassadors and the people of executives that World Hearts gets to work with globally and thinking of the women we work with, regardless of their background, their culture, their ethnicity or whatever, they all have one thing in common. They're all educated. It is the ticket out Mm -hmm. of the most adverse circumstances. And yet a third of girls drop out of school in countries like South Africa as they can't manage their periods. And we all pay the price for that. I remember, you know, when I was thinking about um, the business in Asia, I mean, I had the privilege of running SAP's business in Asia Pacific Japan for a number of years. And it is an incredible region. And it's an incredible region of growth. It's an incredible region of innovation. Uh, and, you know, if you think about um, Asia as a as a region, you know, it's it's bookended with two countries that have the largest populations in the world, right? You know, China at one end and and India at the opposite end. And then so much diversity in between, you know, what they describe as the elephant and the dragon, you know, the two symbols of, um, of China and India. But, you know, there were times when I was often struck by, you know, economies that for whatever reason historical, cultural, social, we're leaving, you know, half the talent of the country on the bench. Um, And, you know, particularly in times when, you know, demographics were changing, populations were aging, there was a distinct shortage of talent. Uh, and, And to see this obvious, you know, um, I, I guess ignoring of, you know, what was a, a talent pool that was largely untouched in some of these economies, it, it was something that was very difficult to understand, um, you know, particularly when talent and the ability to bring talented individuals into any environment where you want to grow um, and you want to innovate is, you know, probably the perennial challenge for most companies in most countries, I would say. Mm. Um, so I think it's incredible to see, you know, the difference that Wild Hearts makes. You know, at the end of the day, we we can choose to make a difference a day at a time, a person at a time. You know, and I now have quite a large team in, in my SAP role. And, you know, no matter how sophisticated we become in, in so many ways, it never ceases to amaze me, the difference that a talented individual can make in the context of doing their job. Um, it's a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite incredible. To your point, though, as the world shrinks and tech is a key factor in making that happen and cultures are competing more vigorously against each other, really to leave half your brain power of your whole country and not engage it is a bit of a competitive disadvantage, isn't it? I shudder to think what World Hearts would be like if it wasn't for some of the young women that have worked there and what they brought to the table. I mean, we literally wouldn't be half as effective as we are. Yeah. So to not harness that is, well, it's yeah. bizarre. And look, it's probably why in, in, you know, today, the whole context of diversity and inclusion is a very important topic for organisations mm-hmm. because, you know, innovation is the lifeblood of every company, regardless of whether you're a tech or not. Whatever you make, whatever you do, innovation 
uh, is the lifeblood of your company. And you only become innovative, I feel, when you can bring together individuals who have a diverse and a different frame of reference. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not just gender orientated, that, that there's so many different facets to it. But it is that diversity of the frame of reference, which is something, you know, that begins, as you say, you know, as you mentioned earlier, in terms of how you're raised, you know, the values that you receive from your parents, your grandparents, the part of the world that you grew up in, religious, every every type of belief. Mm-hmm. This diversity of frame of reference is what underpins a lifeblood of innovation as long as there is an inclusive culture, right? So, it, you know, it's it's one thing to be diverse. It's another thing to ensure that everybody feels that they have a role to play and that role is a valued role. Exactly. So, I mean, great. the phrase I love is diversity of mind. I mean, think about it. You get people who are trying to be innovative, but if they all went to the same type of school and they're all from mm-hmm. the same socioeconomic background with the best will in the world, they, they don't know what they don't know. Yes. Um, you're right, but the culture has to give permission for people mm-hmm. to be who they are and not feel they have to conform to a kind of cultural yes. corporate stereotype, don't they? You touched on the setbacks at school and having the guts to kind of go back to school and get your uniform on again, which you know, it's, it's a great story. Is there any other setbacks you feel maybe culturally you faced to, um, to get where you are now, things that you had to overcome, if it's okay for you to share that with us? Um, you know, I mean, sometimes um, I'm asked about you know, were you the only woman in the room, you know, uh, on, you know, on many occasions, right? That would definitely be the case. Um, you know, I've, I've been in the, in the tech sector, you know, more than 20, 25, 26 years now. So I guess, you know, that would definitely have been the case. But I don't know that I ever viewed it as a negative, interestingly enough, right? Because there were times when being the only woman in the room made you different and if you are different then you can be remembered if you are remembered because your contribution was a considered and a valuable one then you know that can be something that can be very very differentiating in a positive way rather than in a negative way so I guess I always tried to view it in that light that, you know, when you are different, you have an opportunity to create a memory, take the moment to try and create a positive one. Um, and that can become something that can that can accelerate your career rather than derail it. And tech must have changed so much. I mean, in over 25 years, you'll have seen cultures evolve quite significantly oh. in that time frame, yes. I would imagine. Yes, it's it's. It's, you know, it's so pervasive. It's pervasive now. You know, you think about our own personal lives and the delineation between professional and personal life is sometimes hard to make because they're so intertwined, your personal and your professional life, on the devices that we use every single day. It does mean that we have to be very conscious about technology and and the role that we want it to play in our daily lives Um, and it does mean that the working day as as we've known it and i think perhaps even more so now 
um, as we're navigating through COVID from one uncertainty to another. You know, the delineation of our daily lives isn't formulated necessarily by a structured working day. So it needs to be formulated by the decisions that you make around, you know, the priorities for your day and the priorities for your time. You know, what's important right now versus might be what might be important uh, later on. Um, and, and understanding, you know, that those are decisions that I guess each of us as individuals have to make and have to consider because that delineation, you know, and I think about, you know, about my dad, I mean, he went to work and he came home from work and there was a very clear delineation between his working day and his home life. That's not true in tech, and it's not true, I think, for a lot of companies today. I mean, sometimes even I remember early on, you know, I'd be at home and I'd, like at home in Dublin, I'd go back and I'd be working through something in the evening. And my mum would ask me, are they paying you now? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, I, and I go, well, not really. Well, then, then, then why are you doing that? Right. And, um, you know. <laughs> It's, uh, it, it is this, you know, this division that we have to be, I think, much more conscious of than perhaps in the past we've been. There's been a lot of discussion now um, about the negative effects that tech is having on culture, both individually mm-hmm. and a wider culture. But equally as powerful um, is the incredible force for good and the initiatives that tech is enabling. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd really love to come on to your SAP's work with social enterprises mm-hmm. and the work you're doing there. SAP's identified social enterprises as the future of business. Why is that? And what are you doing to bring that vision to life in practical terms? I first came across social enterprises many years ago, actually in Australia and New Zealand, when I had launched a an internal entrepreneurship initiative, a social entrepreneurship initiative in our, our Asia business called One Billion Lives. And, and that was the first time that I came across a social enterprise because one of the teams, one of the internal SAP teams that submitted an idea into the One Billion Lives program had partnered with the social enterprise as part of that submission. And I guess I hadn't realized that there were companies like that, right? Like uh, social enterprises out there, right? And and the more the more that I got to learn and know, I guess the more inspired I became. And, and certainly, you know, SAP were were not a social enterprise, but we can absolutely be inspired by them. For me, when I I think about you know um, a company like SAP. I am personally inspired by the mission of our company, which is to improve people's lives. And I think that we have a wonderful opportunity to really make that mission live. Um, We're a company that operates across uh, over 130 countries. We operate across 25 different industries. So we can be a connector. As a company, we can demonstrate the power of and, that the combination of 
profit and purpose can be super powerful and that in fact they must coexist. And when we think of the current pandemic and some of the light that it's thrown on businesses, on community, on, on how we operate, I think that it's probably more important than ever just right now as corporations to be intentional. Um, and I think that your employees demand it, your customers certainly demand it, and more and more investors are beginning to reward companies that have at their core a positive impact on the societies and on the communities that they live in and operate on. So it's um, it's been quite a journey for us. It's many years in the making, but I do think that this particular moment in time really creates a moment for us to be intentional. And the fact that you've opened up your SCP Ariba purchasing platform mm -hmm. for social enterprise, I was speaking to Linda Candia, the chief procurement officer at Johnson Johnson in a previous podcast, and he cited SCP particularly. I think wonderful things that people wouldn't associate tech as having a role in, speaking simplistically, like, for example, in empowering Indigenous-owned companies in places like Australia mm -hmm. and maybe communities that giving corporates a chance to interact and procure from people who were significantly distant from that process in yeah. the past. Can you tell okay. us more about that? Well, look, I mean, I, I think that when you think about procurement in the context of the corporate world, it's something that's common across every company. So every single company procures, right? And, and there are a series of items that regardless of what you make or what service you deliver, you know, those items are universally common across, again, the corporate world. And, you know, that's termed indirect procurement. So not the items that you need for manufacturing, um, you know, for manufacturing, say, the product that you're making, the raw materials, but everything that goes around supporting that. So, you know, the paper in the printers, the coffee in the coffee machines, the water, um, you know, the water in the water machines, the, you know, the office supplies, the pens, the paper, the stencils, whatever it happens to be. When you think about that type of procurement, it actually is a significant expenditure for most companies. When I think about our corporate world and you know large-scale multinationals, most multinationals have a corporate social responsibility program, and we have an incredible one we're very proud of, as do most other companies. But actually, for every $1 that companies spend on corporate social responsibility initiatives, they spend about $400 just on the stuff that it takes to run their business. And so procurement is such an easy lever because it's the items that you're buying anyway. And now you can choose to be intentional in who you buy from so that the impact of what you buy, the impact of your spend can be extrapolated far beyond anything that you imagined possible. So you can essentially choose to procure your coffee, 
or procure your coffee from Change Please, for example, a social enterprise in the UK, and know that the profits of that second cup of coffee from Change Please are going to help rehabilitate homeless people back into society. And that's the choice that I think companies need to consider and need to be intentional about. And I believe that from an SAP perspective, we can play a role in a number of ways. I mean, first of all, we are the proud custodian of the largest business-to-business network in the world. And to do today, Ariba, the Ariba marketplace, the Ariba network, transacts approximately three trillion US dollars of business-to-business commerce every year. And using that platform is one of the ways that we're supporting social enterprises and diverse held businesses to have a presence, to make themselves known on that platform to those who are procuring on behalf of their companies. But that's just one of the ways. The other ways that we are supporting social enterprises is through access to capacity building. And this is something that um, you know, I think all companies could consider. You know, we have incredible professionals in our company in marketing, in sales, in system design, in system delivery and service delivery in every aspect that it would take to run a company and making some of those skills available to social enterprises supports these companies in building their own capability and their own capacity. And then of course we are providing software that helps, you know, the world's largest businesses and indeed, you know, a a vast array of mid market uh, sized organizations run their companies Um, and we're making that software available to social enterprises so that there's an opportunity for social enterprises to continue to scale and continue to grow. So there is a number of different ways that we're engaged, but uh, you know, the, the context of providing a platform to facilitate easier procurement, to facilitate visibility, is of course something that's very differentiating, you know, for us, and we're very honored to to be able to share that technology with social enterprises and with like-minded corporations who want to join us on our five and five by 2025. And that's are you inspiring companies to spend five percent of their spend, or tell us more about five by and five by 25 specifically. You know, making in inside SAP, I run our customer success board area and this is the board area where all of the customer facing resources of SAP reside so whether it's sales whether it's services whether it's post sales customer support so essentially it's it's the board area through which the vast majority of the revenue of the company originates and runs through um, and when i think about that part of our business that key element of our business, um, we measure in, we measure it in so many ways, right? We've KPIs for almost every business driver you can imagine, and we can analyze them every which way because, you know, most businesses today are data-driven. And the five 
uh, and five by 2025 is really the opportunity that that exists for us to place an objective around an initiative that we've been running uh, for quite a while and to really formalize that initiative. We ran um, a trial program in 2019 in the UK with Social Enterprise UK to look at in the context of SAP UK, how much of our addressable spend could we redirect to social enterprises? And in the context of this pilot, there was a lot of things that we came to understand and a lot of things that we learned along the way. First of all, we were able to bust some very common myths, maybe even some things that I myself might have had at the back of my mind, right? You know, those were the myths around, um, you know, that uh, social enterprises would not be as price favorable as non-social enterprise suppliers or non-socially minded uh, suppliers. That's not true. That social enterprises would not be able to deliver at the same quality as other companies. I can absolutely uh, tell you for sure that that's not true. And that social enterprises would not be corporate procurement ready. And that is also not true. Within the nine-month period of our first trial, we were able across four procurement categories to redirect our spend to 20 different social enterprises who were able to meet our stringent procurement terms and conditions. So that pilot taught us a lot. Um, it taught us a lot about how you onboard social enterprises into your business. And I think there's learnings that we're more than happy to share, you know, in that regard. But it also taught us that within that period of time, we were able to redirect two and a half percent of our spend to social enterprises in the UK. And we thought, okay, that was two and a half percent. Now let's use this reality to look at the math across the totality of SAP. Because it's important that we, we understand that we're not talking about all procurement in a company. We're talking about that part of the procurement that can be addressed by social enterprises and by, by diverse businesses. Um, and so we did a lot of math, we did a lot of research, and we recognized that this 5% goal was a realistic goal that we could achieve by 2025 for our total procurement across the company. And we launched the initiative to formalize that objective. Now, this isn't like a program that kind of sits on the edge of anything. The interesting thing about this initiative is it's buried in the very heart of your business. It's buried in the very heart of your business processes. You know, right from the time that you identify a need all the way through to the delivery of that good or that service into your business. So there are a whole series of different aspects of your business process that you have to address. And it's involved many different elements of SAP's business team. And I'd particularly like to say a huge thank you to, you know, our procurement team 
in the UK who, who led by example um, and who really helped us to hone in on what was possible, what could be possible if we amended some aspects of our process, and what could be possible if we really supported the onboarding and enablement of social enterprises as far as corporate procurement requirements were concerned. And, you know, for me, one of the most endearing moments of, of this particular pilot was when our chief procurement officer in SAP UK felt like he was the chief purpose officer of the company. You know, that for the first time, he understood that he wasn't just with his team procuring in order to get, you know, uh, some great value for money for SAP, but that he was procuring to achieve that because, you know, that's part and parcel of his role. But also at the same time that he was achieving that outcome, he was helping to make a difference because the impact of our spend was going to be so much more significant than anything that we'd done before. You know, Joe, you, you took the, my next question right out of my mouth because in that fantastic Forbes article, you have, well, the chief, which was entitled, well, the chief uh, procurement officers soon become the chief purpose officer. We've quoted that so many times and so many chief procurement officers really respond to that. They see it's almost a a huge expansion of their role. And I know that people like Robin Syndrome and Nestle, et cetera, they constantly refer to that line. It's something they're very, very proud of. Oh, that's so lovely. Yeah. You know, it's actually, I will tell you, Mick, that one of the consequences of this program that wasn't one of the reasons why we set out to do it, but you know, it's certainly one of the very positive consequences is the impact that it has on employee engagement. Mm. Um, and when you think about particularly the tech industry, uh, you know, and particularly the skills that you have in your business, they're highly sought after skills. Um, and um, you know, salaries tend to be pretty much the same across companies and you know people can command um you know high salaries and benefits and so on you know tend to be fairly similar people differentiating in a variety of ways in order to make themselves attractive as an employer um and when you when you think about you know coming to work uh, in the morning uh you know for a company where this company is choosing to make a difference, right, and and choosing to do so in um, in a way that can be very broad in terms of its impact, those are the kind of things that can really make a difference around employee engagement and ultimately then retention. Um, and that was actually one of the consequences, one of the very positive consequences of our program in the UK that we hadn't anticipated. It is remarkable that, you know, when you look at the, we call it in World Health, we call it compassionate disruption, that we're very aware of environmental disruption, political disruption, tech disruption, but the kind of silent disruption is the profound change in attitudes of what people expect from the companies they buy from and the companies they want to work for. And the brands like SAP that are ahead of the game, you do get much higher levels of staff engagement because people want more from their role than simply, if you will, paying the rent you know they they want to feel that their values are being addressed as well i mean coming coming to that point adair you sap have been so 
gracious and open with Wild Hearts you have is we've spoke about three of your global conferences, I think. You've consulted with us, you're a Wild Hearts customer, and now we're having this podcast. But I think in terms of your own personal role, um, not only are SAP did you not only join the Biosocial Corporate Challenge um, as a, a contributing brand, but you're now, as we know, one of the, the, the leading brand ambassadors globally for it. Why did you make that extra commitment, given with all the demands in your time? And why did you decide to do that? And what's your vision for that role? What would you like to achieve there? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm very honoured, honestly, that I was asked um, to do this. I think that the role that I have is is it's an incredible role i you know i work in an incredible company um with a very strong vision around the impact that this company wants to make um and i have an incredible platform in the role that i have and within the context of the company you have permission to see what you can achieve with that platform and i feel that Whilst I have never been a social entrepreneur, right, and whilst the company that I work for is not a social enterprise, you can still practice social entrepreneurship, right, Um, even in the context of operating in a corporate governance framework that is different. And so I think for me personally, there is a passion around wanting to use this incredible position I have to see what kind of differences we can make. And to consider that for the corporate world, is there really a better way to grow? None of us are in any shape, make or form, not understanding even for a single second, the importance of profit and the importance of shareholder return, right? That, that's a given. But when, you think about the power of and it doesn't mean that one can be exclusive to the other and in fact you need to make a profit in order to be able to to demonstrate actions that you know might be different as it relates to your purpose so this is i think a unique role a unique opportunity to to take the the position of not just the role but also of of a company like SAP that operates across so many industries, has so many connects, and to play the role of a connector, both from a technology perspective, but also just from a, um, you know, a business perspective. And, you know, more so than now, I'll just repeat it again, we need to be intentional in our thinking. And when you think about business relationships, they are not based on single transactions. They are not based on the fact that at this point in time, company A transacted with company B. If there's one thing that has become very apparent to me during the navigation of our business through COVID, it has been the power of collaboration. And it has been the power of relationships. And when those relationships are founded in part, perhaps they even begin with the transactional relationship. But when they actually are instilled with companies that have a common sense of purpose, a common sense of value, then they become much longer term in terms of 
you know, longevity of a relationship, but also much deeper in terms of the connects between companies. And looking forward, you know, it is going to be companies that have vibrant, thriving, collaborative ecosystems that will be the companies that define the future. And I really hope that social enterprises will be part of that ecosystem because they will typify and bring to that ecosystem the power of and in a very practical way. Do you know, Adair, a repeated theme from the leaders that I've had the privilege of interviewing in this podcast series is that of collaboration and of shared values and collaboration between across sectors and across different companies. And I think when social enterprises get the chance to work with brands of the scale of SAP and the the sheer potential of the resources that you can leverage, the impact we can create in partnership together is really, really exciting. And I'm beginning to see the impact that SAP is having on Wild Hearts. And we've just started working with you. So I'm so, so grateful to you for your leadership um, and so, so grateful to SAP for everything they've done for Wild Hearts. And I'm especially grateful for your time today in this podcast. So thank you very, very much, Adair. You're most welcome. It is my pleasure.